Good morning. All right. Well, we're we're back at, at, at in church history, and, and uh, Cody did some some research. He counted it up. Apparently, this is our hundredth class period. Uh, so yes, woot woot. Um, so it's it's you know it's appropriate we have like two people. No, no. People will come in as as they come in. It's, it's, it's one of those kinds of days. Oh yeah. See, people are already trickling in. Anyway. We're continuing talking about kind of the end of the age of enlightenment, and we're at a time, and this is this is kind of where we ended last time, that everything's changing. There's a whole lot of new ways of thinking that are changing how and why people do all the stuff that they're doing. So, we ended last time, uh, 1721, Pyotr Alexeyevich, uh, uh, Alexeyevich, yeah, Alexeyevich, uh, becoming emperor in Russia. Now, before I say anything else about this guy, what could you say about Pyotr just looking at the picture so far. Mustache. He's got, he's got a great mustache. He looks like an American. How so? No, I'm just kidding. Because he just looks normal and white. <laughs> oh! 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 I mean, We're posting this! I mean, from back then! What does mean from back then? Okay. Oh well, okay, what, I, so I will say, he does look... He does, I think you might be onto something. What Was What about him makes him look... Style. How so? He doesn't have like a big gray wig or like some fancy French weird thing on his head. Yeah, I mean, look at the other big monarchs here. How does he look different from them? His I mean, normal self. It's his normal. Not only is it not a big gray wig, big long thing, but it's it's more normal. It's less uh, artificial. What were you going to say, Nikki? I was just going to say he looks like a, a military aristocrat. Yes, he does. So. Um, He's, he's got a uniform on, right. and a relatively normal-looking uniform, not like a, I'm the king, so make me a nifty velvet uniform. It's like, no, it's like a uniform, uniform, uniform. Okay, what else? So he doesn't have the big, big poofy wig. He's actually wearing a uniform. Anything else? Sash. Okay, that, he's got a mustache. No, the stash. The sash. Oh, I thought you said stash. No, no. It looks like the other guys might have stashes. Yeah. Yeah, the sash isn't necessarily the thing, but yes, he's, he's got a mustache, which is kind of the rage at the time. He's got short hair. Shorter hair. Not a wig. Yep, we were just talking about that. Uh, Does he have his weapon there, too? Like a, yep. Is that a sword? Yep. He's got strength. Yep. In general, he's this young athletic military guy, and he's modern in every sense of the term. Which is kind of what I'm going to take what you were saying about Americans, is that in everything, he's just like, uh, young men are wearing mustaches, so I'm going to wear a mustache. I, I don't like the whole poofy wig thing, so I'm not wearing a poofy wig thing. He's, uh, actually, I think he was like 6'8", and he's this big guy. So, so yeah, in everything, he says, I don't care what's come before, this is the way people are acting now. This is the way people are looking now. And in that respect, he's very American. And he's very up to the minute, very stylish. He looks more like the kind of person that we tend to style ourselves like today in many ways. So, 1721 becomes the emperor in Russia. Third son of Tsar Alexis I, who wasn't even remotely modern necessarily. I mean, look, at this is the last Tsar. This is the new one. Well, why might that be? He does have a mustache and a beard. I'll tell you what. What? Yeah, I know. What? Why might that be? Why might a, a Russian dress like somebody from Asia? Because they ruled by Mongolia, yeah. and a lot of their country is East Asian. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, Russia is Asian, right? Russia's in Asia. We don't. That's Eastern Europe. You go. We don't look at Putin. You know, he looks. I understand. I understand. Well, my point is, you go. Why do the Russians look Asian? You go. Because they're in Asia. We tend to think of them as that easternmost part of Europe. But especially at this time, they're still the most western part of Asia, right? Yeah. And, and yes, as, as Michael's saying, they even include chunks of Mongolia and stuff. But it's an Asian power. Why do we think of them as Europe if they're in Asia? Because of this guy, actually. Yes. Good call. You see, you're catching. Yeah. So, Alexis dies. Leaves his throne to his eldest son, Fedor, who reigns for like a minute and a half. He's, he's not a very healthy person. He ends up dying. Leaving the throne 
known to Pyotr and his elder brother, Ivan V. Oh, no. Oh, no, no, this is a great idea. It's a good idea. Okay. Let me leave my, let me leave my um, whole uh, territory to my three sons because they won't fight over it. They'll yeah. just share. Or divvy it up like Lear did. Yeah, no. Okay, so they're joint rulers. They're children. They're in charge, which means the real power falls to their... Oh, well, yes, but there's an official word for it when... Regent. Yes, the, the person who's in charge of the king when the king is too young to be the king. Their older half-sister, Sophia. That's right. Who's not... This is the nicest, happiest picture of Sophia I could find. <laughs> Sophia is a little intense. In fact, she cut a hole in the back. They had a special dual throne built. She cut a hole in the back of the throne so she could hide behind there and feed them lines when they're in court. Oh, my goodness. You know, so people say... You, you see the hole? Why would, what was she doing? The hole? She'd hide behind, she'd hide behind the throne, and then when somebody would say something, she'd tell them what to say back. She could oh, hear what was going on. Oh, so she is literally the power behind the throne in every sense of the term. <laughs> what were you gonna say, Michael? Uh, just yeah. You know, so the two boys were sitting on either side of the throne. Yeah. Okay. Um, this is the cushion, and so they'd sit here and here. Wow. And joint sardom. By the time he was 17, Pyotr had, had, had become popular enough, and specifically popular enough with the military, that he was able to force Sophia to resign as regent and become a nun. That's the deal. Because originally he's like, you're going to die. We're, we're, and she's like, how about nun? He's like, how about nun? Go be a nun. We'll give you nun. That's fine. Now I say he and Ivan, because Ivan was not a particularly strong person. And Pyotr is just like nothing but force of personality. So very quickly, Ivan, even though he's the older brother, just sits on the throne and Pyotr tells him what to say. Because there's a precedent in that, right? I mean, we already have a precedent of, yeah, I sit on the throne, but it's not like I'm the one in charge. And Pyotr's like, right, fine, beat Tsar, but I'm the one who's going to be, you know, Tsar. You can sit there and, and dress really fancy, but I'm the one doing everything, right? And Ivan's like, uh, 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 immediately, Piotr starts uh, doing a whole bunch of different reforms all across the board. Reorganizes the Russian army and uh, organizes it specifically along the lines of the Austrian army. He's like, these guys rock. They're, they're, they're the best army right now in Europe. That's what we want to look like. In fact, if you look at this with any kind of care at all, when you look at his uniform, it's basically an Austrian uniform. And so up until this point, everybody's dressed in robes. Think, you know, when you think of, like, Cossacks, that kind of look, that's the Russian army before Pyotr. This is the Russian army after Pyotr. It looks like a European army. It's structured like a European army. It's got divisions like a European army. It's got uh, ranks like a European army. Everything. I think he brings in Austrians to train his troops so that they act like a European army. So instead of wearing breastplates, they wear this little fancy little pseudo breastplate thing that everybody's kind of all the rage in Europe that, that points to a breastplate without actually doing any breastplating. That sort of thing. Along the same lines, he says, I'm going to build up the Russian Navy. And you say, but the Russian Navy, you don't even have any ports on the Baltic. You don't have any ports on the Black Sea. And he's like... And they're frozen mostly. <laughs> no, no, no. That, that, was, that was one freaky year. Um, so you go, well, yeah, i got to do something about that. So he makes a deal with Poland. He's like, tell you what, you're constantly bumping up against the Ottomans. We'll help you against the Ottomans. The Ottomans are going, dude, we just want tulips. It's like, no, we're going to make a deal with Poland. We'll help Poland against the Ottoman Empire. And as a result, we'll start gaining some more territory, including, including Livonia and stuff, all these territory up on the Baltic. So now we have Baltic ports and a port right over here on the Black Sea. So now we have another port. And Kiev, which up until this point, Kiev has been in Poland. When you think of, of Kiev, you think Russia. You go, no, no. And so up until this time, Russia has really been an Asian thing, and now it's starting to become a European power. A, because it's starting to have more area of Europe, and B, because they are consciously trying to be more European. And it, 
So Poland just gave them a bunch of land in exchange for help against the Ottomans. Mm -hmm. That's that's history in a nutshell. Now, if you, okay, tell you what. Um, North Carolina desperately wants to, or call it Carolina. Carolina desperately wants to take over uh, what Maryland. <laughs> so Maryland goes. Well, we used to have all this territory over here, um, but now we we're, we're beset by. Tell you what, you roving bands of Pennsylvanians, if you just help us against Carolina, we'll give you the land that. You can now call Pennsylvania. Now, we've already start, talked about Pennsylvania, so you know that's not how that goes. But I mean, that's, that's history in a nutshell. If you will help us not be completely taken over, we'll give you a chunk of land that you can call your own. Yeah. The people that lived in that chunk of land, would they have then become Russian? Yep. And assimilated the Russian culture? Yep. And they were willing to do that? I mean, it doesn't matter. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> really, really. Gotta remember how this works. This is still a time period where, hey, our king's Russian. Okay, we're Russian. Our king's Lithuanian. Okay, we're Lithuanian. Our king is Lutheran. Apparently, we're all Lutherans now. Our king is Catholic. Oh, okay, stop being Lutherans. You're all Catholics now. And people go, okay. Does that change the wheat crop? No? Okay. Oh, wait, so instead of calling him Reverend Floyd, he's now Father Floyd? Yeah. i got to remember that. Okay. It doesn't change their everyday life. And even if it did, they'd go, I... Not like I got a choice in the matter. Think about how often uh, the, the the leadership in, in England has flip flopped in terms of what their religion is and what everybody else has to do. So yes, I mean you'd, you'd go. Apparently this week we're Russian. Well, I wasn't Far. sure because Russia just got bigger. I wasn't sure if they like. Fought. No, no. Poland just said fine. Take Kiev. Take this area. We'll help you take this area up there. And and of course Sweden's over there going. Wait, what now? You're just <laughs> In a nutshell, but Poland for a while there. Poland has been huge. Poland, yeah, Poland has gotten. It's it's been a major power. Why have we not been talking about Poland that often? I mean, they've had an occasionally really cool person, but basically, Poland's just been sitting there going, "We're big, we're doing well. Y'all fight over there. We're just doing our thing." So, okay, so it also reorganizes the Russian court. Um, he says, all right, you got to dress like Europeans dress. Uh, you got to, no more beards. Y'all wear these big old beards. No more beards. You got to dress and act and trim your hair like Western Europeans. In fact, there's going to be a tax on beards and a tax on robes. Because this is the way that they dressed before Pyotr. This is the way they dressed after Pyotr. Right? It's like, we're going to be European. But we're not. Yes, we are. No, we're, we're Asian. No, we're European. But we're in Asia. No, we're in Eastern Europe. Eastern Europe's not even a thing! No, no, we're Eastern Europe. Just on the outskirts of Asia. Also changes the calendar. Okay, everybody, it's 7207 of the Russian calendar. Because we can trace back to the creation of the world, September 1st. That's the beginning of, this, of the new year. And he goes, no, no, no. It's now 1700 and January 1st is the beginning of the new year because that's the way they do it in Europe. So we're following the Julian calendar. People are like, we've lost 6,000 years. No, 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 no. We gained Europe. So from now on, don't say, what year is it? Well, it's 7207. No, it's 1700. That's the way it's going to work. Was his goal not only to be European but also to start taking over Europe? No, not necessarily. Okay. Not necessarily. Just, just little bits of Poland at this stage in the game. Okay. He actually, I mean, he took some territory um, over the east part. I mean, so under Piotr, you go from, like, Livonia on the west, well, pretty much all the way across Europe. By the time you're done with, or, you got me doing it, all the way across Asia. I mean, by the time Piotr's done, Russia spans the entire continent. Um, but in general, he's not famous for getting more territory. Russia already had tons of territory by this time. What he's famous for is pulling everything together, organizing it, and controlling it, and streamlining so that you've got this fully um, European empire all the way across Asia. Um, he, he uses his serfs to build the city of St. Petersburg, named after St. Peter. 
who only happened to have the same name that Peter does, Piotr. So it's it's Piotrsburg. People go, you named it after yourself? No, no, no. Named it after Peter. Very devout, right? It happens to be my name. So every time people talk about Petersburg, it's not like I hear my name. It's named after Saint Kevin, the the <laughs> the very obscure Irish saint that everybody likes. We're going to call ourselves the Church of Kevin. It just happens to be my name too. But it's really just remind yourselves anytime that anybody wonders about that that we're really naming ourselves after Saint Kevin. Anyway. It's on the Baltic coast. Move the capital there. Move the seat of government there. We're no longer in Moscow. We're in St. Petersburg. Why? Well, I was just thinking when you showed the map that mm -hmm. if they're way over on the other side of Asia, or Asia, mm -hmm. how is he controlling all his new navy and stuff if he's that far away? So Good point. He needs so, to be closer because I mean, they don't have the internet yet. So not. That's <laughs> literally. Decades away. Yep, yep. <laughs> but yeah, and so he's closer to, to to the actual ports. He's closer to Europe. He's moving westward. What else? And it's not Moscow. It's not what it's always been. So part of this is just we're not what we used to be. So all that stuff that is entrenched, yeah, all that goes by the wayside. Um, 1721, he's finished his war against Sweden called the Great Northern War. He's nestled in, he's just like, I got my Livonia, I got, I'm, I'm over, we're, we're just taking Vietnam, we're taking the whole thing, we're on top of everything, I'm the emperor of all the Russias. Because the Russias are the groups of people, right? Remember the Rus, the Viking tribes, the Rus? So when you, t you hear about him, I'm the Tsar of all the Russias, or I'm the emperor of all the Russias, Russia's not a place, Russia's a people. So it's all the Rus tribes, all the Russians, all everywhere. Yvonne's just kind of sitting there going, okay, oh, well, by 1721, uh, I think he might even be dead by then. Oh, um, okay, I didn't know if he, like, ever tried to form a uh, He almost worked with Sophia. That's a whole other story. But he almost worked with Sophia for, for a little bit and then went, I, I need to pick my pony a little bit more carefully because Sophia's <laughs> going down. Okay, part of what he did, though, to consolidate his rule was to reform the church, too. He's like, uh, I, I don't want any structures existing the way they used to exist. So when the Patriarch, Adrian of Moscow, remember the Patriarch is, the Patriarch of Moscow is like the Bishop of Rome. It's the Eastern Orthodox Russian version of the Pope. When Mo the, the, the Patriarch of Moscow died in 1700, Piotr refused to allow any other new guy to take the place. He's like, no, 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 we'll just have a committee run it for a little bit. And by the time you get to 1721, He's, he's designed it to be something different entirely. He's like, I don't, I don't want a church. I don't like church. I don't like the concept of church. The church is so last century. Because remember, we've had a couple of decades now of rationalists, of, of the Enlightenment. People are smart now. We're not superstitious. We don't believe that some carpenter was nailed to a tree and then got up afterwards. That's ridiculous. So, no, I don't like churches. And I really don't like the idea of a rival leader sitting in Moscow telling people what to do. So, I don't want another patriarch in Moscow. Tell you what I'll do. 1721, he dissolves the office officially and creates a holy synod, a holy group. that comes together uh, as a bunch of bishops and runs the church. By the way, I get to pick all the bishops, and the person who runs the synod is a civil servant, not part of the church. That works, Right? So you, you've got this government agent running it, and I get to pick the people in charge of it. Oh, yeah. The state now completely controls the church in Russia because Pyotr wants to control everything, and he's controlling it and regulating it intensely. Churches are taxed, and monasteries are taxed. Their, their, their lands are taken by the government if they can't hold their taxes up. He made it illegal to become clergy before the age of 50. Why? You can't be a clergyman until you're 50. Now, there's the stated reason and there's the rationale that he, he gave behind closed doors. What would be the stated reason for saying, you know, you really should be 50 years old before you before you become a pastor? Wisdom. Wisdom, exactly. With age comes wisdom. Um, so we want to make sure that we're well-seasoned. Okay, what's the rationale that he gave to other people? Yeah. You can't really write them. Yeah, if you're older, you probably don't have as much of a, like, um, 
Because like, to... <laughs> fifty-year-olds have no will. <laughs> no, 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 no,
These were Anabaptists who had gone there in 1533, uh, the same year that Jean Calvin was converted. Because they believed crazy heresies like that war and violence are bad things. Really, really shouldn't do that. Maybe baptism should be reserved for people who have actually repented. What with the fact that it's always tied to that in Scripture. Maybe the church should be living as a community of faith instead of people seeing the church as a building where you go sit in it. So crazy heretics, the Hussites and the, and the Hutterites. These guys, when they said, could you, is, is there anything over in Saxony where we could stay? Is there any place where, where we can find some place where we're not getting killed all the time? And he's like, yeah, yeah, actually, you guys all make sense to me. So yeah, come over here. I'll, get, I'll, give, you a, I'll give you a town. I'm going to give you a village called Herrnhut, and you guys can just live here, and quickly, people from all over Europe go, wait, there's a town in Europe where they don't kill you if you're different? Oh, yeah, let's go there. That's good. thing blows up with tons of people. But they all, they're not tons of people that all believe the same stuff. It's any sect where anybody sat there and said, y'all crazy, we're going to kill you. Those people all went to Hamlet. So they didn't always get along, right? Because there's some people who are like, ah, oh, we're here because people killed us if we, if, if we said you should baptize infants. Well, people killed us if we said that you shouldn't. Oh, okay, we hate you. Yeah, and they're all living in the same town. So he finally leaves his diplomatic work to go and, and meet with everybody in Heron He goes from house to house, has Bible studies, prayer time each day with the various people. He's like, yep, we've got to get along. We've got to work through some of this stuff. Even though we're diverse, surely we can get along, right? So give him some credit. He's like, I've got enough money that I can be a pastor on my own time. So I'm essentially going to pastor an entire town. i got a lot of respect for Tzidor. Um... He was born in 1700, so he's only 22 at the time that he's doing this stuff and, and, and trying desperately to get these people to, to work together. 1723, hymnals come under fire in, in New England. And I'm not talking about bad hymnals. I'm talking about any hymnals. It's a bad thing to have a hymnal. Why? Why would it be bad to have a hymnal? Oh, that's one. There you go. Puritan said, okay, Jean Calvin says it's always wrong to use any instruments. Instruments are a distraction. So, never use instruments. But the hymns that you sing, you should just sing the Psalms. Everything you that you sing should just come out of Scripture, shouldn't it? Or, or do you think you could write better than Jesus? Eric, do you think you could write better than Jesus? I'm not. <laughs> so you would never write a song other than what God himself has already written, right? I'm glad we, we nailed that down. Well, yeah, I hope we don't sing any songs not from the Bible directly in, in, in church service today, because we'll have words afterwards. And a congregation should just come together and sing whatever melody God has laid on their hearts. The idea of writing down notes and telling somebody that's what they have to sing, so what, you just, it's just a map, right? I'm just following the map. It's not like I'm engaging my brain or my spirit. I'm just having to do what everybody else does by rote. That honors God? Okay, sing the next note this way. Okay, that, yeah. Sing the next note this way. Okay, that. Yeah, that's not worship. That's just being an automaton. That's what they're arguing. I, can you not agree with Can you see the point? They're like, oh, what a, this is horrendous. The idea of writing down the notes and telling everybody this is what you have to sing and it's not from Scripture, this is horrible. This is an affront to God, because it's an affront to worship. I don't know if you're aware of this. Worship music can sometimes be divisive. What? It's true! It's true! Sometimes people cop an attitude because of music. Do an example. People have problems with contemporary music sometimes nowadays. So stop me if you've ever heard, I know, stop me if you've ever heard any of these arguments before. Having all this new music focuses the worship service on being novel all the time. You always have to be up to the minute. You always have to be competing with the Joneses. Instead of being focused on God, it's now focused on being cool. Yeah. Pardon me? Joneses. Have you heard this sort of argument? <laughs> the melodies aren't, aren't as melodious as the classics. That was music. This stuff is just a bunch of choruses. That stuff had real music. It had harmonies. Bar songs were... No, some of them. <laughs> um, 
There's so many new songs. You're constantly having to learn new songs. I find it distracting in worship when I'm when every week, yeah, Mark and Vanessa's out there going, okay, we're going to learn a new song, and you can even, you can, I sit in the front, but I can feel the palpable <sighs> from people behind me. All this creates disorder in the service because instead of actually focusing on God, instead of following stuff that you're already familiar with, you're constantly having to do new stuff. You ever hear any of this from people? Um, of course, if everyone's doing the song, the, the melody that God's laying on their heart, I think it's going to sound slightly disordered. Yes. No, it's a, it's a beautiful harmony every time. It's a beautiful harmony every time. The new songs make use of modern instruments. You might as well be at a concert. I mean, you got drums, you got electric guitars up there. That doesn't honor God. Electric guitars? I remember, I remember um, one of the times we went to uh, um, to Urbana, and, and they came back, and somebody was. There were plenty of things that you could point to that maybe were ill considered in that particular Urbana conference. But one of the things I was talking to somebody afterwards, they're like, they're up there with their guitars and their, and their drums. You can't worship God with guitars and drums. I'm like, really? Yeah, you can't. Like, wow, there's whole continents that apparently don't worship God. Um, there's nothing wrong or lacking with the classics. You don't need all these new songs. The classics are there for a reason. Why do you need new stuff all the time other than to focus on being novel, right? That just creates a gulf between um, mature Christians and young Christians. Because there are all these nice songs that we mature Christians sing. Not old Christians. We're the mature ones. There's all these great songs that we sing. Songs of the faith. And then there's all this crud that the young people sing nowadays. Conversely, you can flip that, can't you? There's all those old songs that nobody can sing. It's like, oh, get down there. Oh, there, down there. Slow. <laughs> and then there's the really good songs that we sing, right? <laughs> And here's the big one, and I just heard, I just heard this this week. The use of contemporary music disconnects us from the, the saints of old. They sang these very words. When we sing Amazing Grace, when we sing Be Thou My Vision, we're singing the same song, the same words that they sang 100 years ago, 200 years ago. saying that these new songs, nobody sang them. They didn't exist five years ago. So there's no connection to the church of old. Have you heard these sorts of arguments bounce around today? These arguments were all from 1723. This is from that statement from the New England Puritans about what's wrong with worship music today. Because they do all this stuff. I, I, I love history, okay? I'm telling you. We also think, oh, this is old busty stuff. You go, this is exactly what I was talking about 100, 200, 300 years ago. So, around this time, there was a, a, a rebel Yay. named Isaac Watts. You've heard the name Isaac Watts before? Guy's a jerk. He's a total slimeball. Um, shakes things up all over the place. He's a nonconformist, because remember there was the Act of Uniformity in 17, or 1662 that made all the churches in England have to do the exact same thing. You all have to do what the Church of England does, or else you're a nonconformist. Kind of think uh, like state churches in China. You don't have to be a state church, but you're going to have lots of trouble if you're not. It's going to be more complicated. You have to jump through a bunch of hoops, and we don't really like you, and there may be issues if you are. But you can be a state church and do exactly what we want you to do. So he's a nonconformist. He's like, I'm doing my own thing. He preached in small, unofficial churches. He, he taught logic classes to try to make ends meet. Wrote a book, actually the logic book for an extended period of time. Logic, or the right use of reason in the inquiry after truth with a variety of rules to guard against error in the affairs of religion and human life as well as the sciences. Awesome subtitle. It is. <laughs> <laughs> what I love is this particular issue got logic. <laughs> but he writes this great logic textbook that is not only considered like really, it is really good, and, and, and comprehensive, but it also specifically is writing it so that the lay person can try to understand it. He's like, no, no, I want, I want everybody thinking logically. I want everybody to be rational, because he's a jerk, right? Lots of people have perfectly good opinionated opinions, and he's coming along going, how about we make sense? How about, how about you actually think through what you're doing? 
Um, and he became distressed with the singing of hymns, which, if you'll remember, comes from a Greek word meaning praise chorus, right? So I love it when people make a distinction. They go, hymns versus praise choruses. I'm like, the word means praise chorus. That's what a hymn is. It's a praise. You bonehead. But anyway, so when you talk about the difference between hymns and, and choruses, you're making an artificial distinction based on how you associate the word hymn. But anyway, he's like, you know what? It's devolved into this just droning, dreary, arranged thing. It's not, it's not praising. It's not, nobody's praising. You're all just, uh, if you're, at this time, in the, in the Church of England, the basic practice was that a deacon would read a line of a song, and then the whole service would drone that line. And then the deacon would read the next line, and everybody, because you're right, most people don't want to do all sorts of harmonies and try to do things when you don't know what anybody else is doing, so it essentially becomes plain song. Everybody just drones the same sort of notes. And you go through an entire psalm that way. Word for easy to remember. Actually, they were. Not everybody could read, and you don't have hymnals, because those would be bad. So somebody just reads the first line of the psalm, and then everybody, praise God. It's like, this is not what God, this is. In fact, one contemporary critic said, could poor old King David but for once to Salem Church repair, and hear his psalms rolled out, good Lord, how he would swear. <laughs> So he's like, this is not what David intended. He, he, he did it with the harp and lyre, and he was excited. And there are some songs that are laments, and some songs that are excited. And we've lost all of that. Yeah, but you're in the New Testament now. You can't use instruments. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, he's like, what we can do is update the psalms. Not that they're bad, but they're not Christian. They're Jewish. And so what, why don't we take psalms, the basic ideas that David is doing, write songs with them that include specifically Christian imagery. We'll update the psalms. I'm not going to change the Bible. I mean, they'll stay there, but the psalms that we're singing, let's, let's make them new songs. Let's infuse them with joy, because that's what they were originally written with. Yeah. Historically, the, the Israelites or the Hebrew Jewish congregations, when they were singing their music, have melodies established with those? Um, well, at various points. In fact, several of the psalms, we were just looking at one on, on Friday that would say, to the tune of... Bucky goes to town, you know, or whatever. <laughs> exactly. So he came under fire for writing the song Joy to the World. Right? It's a horrible song. Because it's about Christ's second coming. Right? Joy to the world, the Lord has come. It's about Christ's second coming. And the church says, but the day of judgment, that second coming, is not something to be joyful about. He, I told you you would like the Sunday school lesson, wouldn't I? We had such a problem with it being joyful about the second coming and judgment of Christ that we tend to consider it as if he wrote it about the first coming. So if you'll notice, it says up here, a Christmas song. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Yeah, you know, it's in Bethlehem and all the other shepherds. And you go, it's not what Isaac was saying. He's like, God will come and judge the world and make it right. Praise God, the whole world. Okay, he wrote another one that they hated even more. When I survey the wondrous cross. Horrible song. No, don't awe as if it's a good song. It's a horrible song. Other than like, Be Thou My Vision, which is written by those Irish who are a bunch of nutballs. This is one of the very first hymns ever written in the first person. That is horrible. How dare you write as if you had a personal relationship with God. When I survey the wondrous cross, I've even heard people complain in our sanctuary about, I don't like this. A good song should always be focused on God, not on my feelings about God. This started all that. So it was like this idea of, oh, but you know what? I have feelings about this. I have a relationship with God. Yeah, but that's David, and that's in the Bible. Remember, this is, we're not new in our feelings sometimes. That, well, that's Bible time stuff. That's different. That's Bible time stuff. Many people refuse to sing the song. They're like, no, when that song comes up, I'm just, I'll just stand here. Because I refuse to sing that. Because that is selfish. It is modern. It's got a peppy melody. I don't like it. It's inappropriate in a worship setting. In 2001, Chris Tomlin updated the song with the wonderful cross. Uh, the wonderful cross. Oh, uh, you know what I'm saying. 
Ironically, coming under fire for updating a classic hymn. <laughs> I love history. Even this spring, I found a blogger complaining about how discordant the ceremony was. Because right in the middle of the worship service, we sang this song, and there's this beautiful, when I survey the wonders cross, and then all of a sudden it breaks into this Chris Tomlin chorus, ruining a classic hymn. Because updating classics ignores the historical significance of the hymns. A statement which, in this case, ignores the historical significance of the hymn. You see them giving each other a high five? Yeah, I, or either that, either that or Isaac Watts is going, excuse me for a moment, bang! <laughs> Seriously? Which all brings us back to 1723. Because... Isaac Watts and other hymn writers like that are writing these new things that's it's being quickly labeled the new way of worship. And not in a good thing. That's not a good thing. It's the new, think newfangled. That newfangled way of doing it. It's the old way of worship, i.e. the good way. And the new way of worship with their, with their new praise choruses and horrible things like when I survey the Wonders <laughs> Cross. And they're singing with modern music. They're singing the way modern songs are sung, which is what Isaac is saying. He's like, you really, nobody else sings like this. This is not the way people sing when they're happy. Nobody else does it this way. And that itself was criticized by people. Oh, so now we're singing like the world sings. We're the, we're the Christian church. We're supposed to do things differently than the world. And Isaac came under fire by going, no, our content is different. It doesn't mean we have to like put our pants on inside out because everybody else wears them normal. We don't go out of our way to do things differently because it's different. What we do is different because the content is different. In fact, when the first organ was used in the Americas in 1713 at King's Chapel in Boston, Cotton Mather, because he's, we keep seeing Cotton Mather, right? He's, he's like the Billy Graham of his day. You know, he's, well, I'm famous church guy. Okay, what's famous church guy have to say? Famous church guy preached a series of sermons about how Boston is just going to hell. Boston is a city of wickedness. What was allowing these organs in the sanctuary? Because that's a concert instrument. It's not a church instrument. That's what they use at, at Rock concerts of the day. There's organs. Box playing an organ, all these other people playing an organ. It's the electric guitar of its day. You do realize that a uh, hundred years later, when Amazing Grace is performed, um, or no, 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 better, better yet, uh, when, uh, when Still and I, Silent Night, is performed, it's performed with a guitar and an organ. And the instrumentality was controversial, and everybody balked at that. Because of the organ. Well, it would still be controversial today if we did guitar and organ, and we go guitar. When it was first performed, it was organ. Oh, the guitar was beautiful, but that organ. So this has become the new norm in Protestant churches, and people are having a cow about it. But very quickly, even the new way of worship just becomes the newest way of doing a tradition. Now. That becomes the new tradition, because what we're looking for is tradition. That's the important thing. It's like, uh, it's like when everybody folks about changes on Facebook, and then, and then they're like, and then it dies down after, you know, two weeks, and then Facebook wants to make another change. Everybody's up in arms again. There you go. Like, why'd they have to change it? The old way was just fine. And you're like, two weeks ago, you were complaining about that. I know. Let me ask you a question personally. When you think of a church organ, do you think of that value neutrally? Does it t tend to be a symbol of modernity to you? Or does it tend to be a symbol of traditionalism to you? Yes, all of the above? Okay. I mean, technically, it's just an organ. It's just an instrument. It doesn't mean anything. Does it? It has no spiritual significance one way or the other. All it is is an instrument. It is a means of making musical notes. Just like a flute or an electric guitar or any of that. At the time that it was brought in, in 1713, to the Americas, it was a symbol of modernity. This is modern. It's newfangled. It's bad. Now it's a symbol of tradition. Removing the organ means you're going to newfangled, modern, bad, right? When hymnals first came out, they were a symbol of modernity. We're bringing new modern songs in. They very quickly became symbols of traditionalism. These are our songs. You don't make a new hymnal. 
Because this is the hymnal. My dad sang out of this hymnal. Right? So what are you doing with all these newfangled songs? I find beautiful songs that we've always loved as a church, like When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And now you're doing these newfangled songs like Amazing Grace. Wonderful songs like Amazing Grace that we've had for decades. And now you're doing newfangled songs like Silent Night. Wonderful songs like Silent Night that we've had for a century. And now you're doing newfangled songs like Fill in your favorite Stuart Townsend song. We keep doing the same things over and over and over again because it doesn't matter what variable you plug in. It doesn't matter whether it's uh, whether it's an organ or a hymnal. In general, we like what we have because we institutionalize that. If it's been around for a generation, we institutionalize it. That is important because it's important because we decided it was. And anything new is bad. Or we say anything institutionalized is bad. We need something new. Um, if you read uh, Aristotle, Aristotle talked about how, in general, old men tend to dress out of style. They wear their hair out of style. New, young men listen to the music too loud. It's the wrong kind of syncopation. They dress in bizarre, faddish styles. You go, Aristotle. It's exactly the same thing. It's human nature that we say, give me something new. Or whatever you do, don't give me something new because this is important and that's why it has to stay like this. Why is it again that the Swiss Guard dress like they're from the Renaissance? Because they're regarding the church. And the church stopped changing styles in the Renaissance, right? That's why priests wear cassocks and the Pope looks like he stepped out of the Renaissance and the Swiss Guard dress like they're out of the Renaissance. For the same reason why for so long the BBC liked making period dramas in the 30s. It's like, no, that was the last time we were like in charge of stuff. So, 1727, Georg Ludwig dies. King George I of, of England finally died. Luckily for the Prime Minister, because remember we talked about Robert Walpole, Walpole, who was the temporary Prime Minister of England. He was brought in because Ludwig, you know, Georg Ludwig didn't even like know English. So he said, you know, we probably ought to have somebody who's his official liaison to Parliament. So if you would help him for a short period of time, and he's still in the process of helping, luckily for Walpole, Ludwig dies while he's visiting Hanover in Germany. So Walpole's like, well, I'll tell you what, I'll just keep being in charge for a little while here and ease the transition of the new guy. And so when the very German Georg Augustus, the very German Georg Ludwig's son, so this is George II, he comes on board as king and, and, and Walpole goes, well, I'll, I'll be your prime minister too, I'll help you. Which is good, because like his father, Georg Augustus spoke very little English, because he's a German noble, which means his first language is French, right? Because that's what everybody, in, in courts all around Europe, you all speak French. It's the court language, or the lingua franca, the language that everybody speaks, the language of the Franks, the language of France. Anyway, because you'll hear this, you'll hear this phrase today. Anybody ever heard of a lingua franca? It's, it's what everybody speaks. Y'all speak a, a given language, even though you come from different countries, so that you can all understand one another. Lingua franca. Anyway, he never even seen England until he was 31 years old. And now he's going to be king of England. His father, Georg Ludwig, never really liked him. He was jealous because Georg Augustus was good-looking. He was a military hero. Somehow, and this is, like, awesome PR, somehow... Georg Augustus, who had never even been to England until he was 31, spoke very little English, comes in, and when he's 31, and he's named Prince of Wales, comes in and says, there's not, through an interpreter, there's not a drop of my blood that isn't English. And everybody in England's like, oh, he's us! He's like us! Unlike his father, who's German, you go, you, need, you needed a translator to say it, guys. Uh, very thick German accent saying, there's not a drop of my blood that's not English. So, so I can understand why Garrett Ludwig's like, wait, they bought that? They don't like me, and they love you for some reason. So he didn't like him. And, and they had an altercation at the baptism of Georg Augustus' son in 1717. So Georg Ludwig banishes him from court. George I says, nope, George II, you're banished from court. You don't even get to see your children. George resents this for the rest of his life, hates his dad forever. 
1737, Georg Augustus had an altercation with his own son, Friedrich, at the birth of Friedrich's daughter. So he bans him from court, and Friedrich deeply resents him for the rest of his life. I love the royals, because they learn nothing, right? Make the same mistakes over and over and over again. None of the Georges end up being... Everybody loved George II. Oh, he's going to change everything. George II wasn't anywhere near as good a king as George I was. And George I was not a great king. But George II was just, he was a jerk to everybody. He was uh, focused on himself. He disregarded English law right and left. He's not a good king. Anyway. However, that's the same summer that the Golden Summer Revival broke out. Has anybody ever heard of the Golden Summer? Okay. Tinsendorf, because we're not done with him yet. 27 years old, he spent years going house to house, praying with people, doing Bible studies with people, trying to help them to work together. He's like, why don't we start having worship services together? I know that you're each different sets. I know you come at things from different angles, but let's try connecting with each other. Let's break bread with each other. When we started college, um, all the different campus ministries hated each other on our campus. They wanted nothing to do with one another. They fought over getting the best people, etc. We found a couple people from each ministry, and we all started eating lunch together. We pushed all these tables together, and every, every day we'd have lunch. And we'd make sure we had at least one person from Campus Crusade, one person from InterVarsity, one person from uh, uh, Chi Alpha, all these different things. Just the Lutherans. It was actually kind of fun, because eventually the Lutheran, the Student Center, and uh, the Wesleyans and everything said, would you mind, could we sit with you guys too? Like, absolutely, absolutely. So we had like 20 people sitting there, which is exactly the opposite of what we told people to do in general, of trying to go out. But we're like, we're trying to build community. So we started having, every spring we'd have this big party where all the different groups would come together. Um, and at first, the Church of Christ people refused to come because we would always spend a little bit of time singing. Somebody would be strumming the guitar. And they're like, no, well, since that's against scripture, we went, okay, no guitar. Now will you come? Oh, yeah. So we just would sing a cappella. It's like, anything we can do, we're not going to pretend that from now on this is all that we'll ever do. But so that we can come together and remind each other that we're all part of the same household of faith. Let's, let's just, just not do anything that's going to remind us of all the differences. Let's focus on, the, at least for one day, let's focus on all the stuff we have together. I'm not compromising. I'm just, I'm just saying I don't have to go there today. We're having a party. Let's just have the party. That's what Zinzendorf does. He's like, let's, let's just all try to connect. Let's all just remind each other that we're brothers and sisters. After a while, the various refugees groups at Herrenhut experienced a revival. They read a worship service, a communion service, in 1727, and they had what they referred to as a Pentecost experience, where the Holy Spirit came, filled the place, filled the people, and changed them. Nobody describes exactly what it was, other than it was awesome. But they just had this powerful moment, and they were profoundly changed by it. After that day, they learned to love one another and get past their petty differences. They're like, we want to focus on being one body, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all of us. An aggregate that eventually became known as the Moravian Church. And so, technically, the Moravian Church predates the, um, the, the, the Reformation, because I mean, we had the, the Hussites and the Hutterites before any of the, of the Reformation was going on. But it wasn't formalized as the, as the Moravian Church until now. So all these people coming together going, you know what, even if we're coming from an Anabaptist standpoint or a Pietist standpoint or we're Lutherans, we're, can we all agree on the basics and remind ourselves of that? There's this massive missions explosion because there's this massive missions emphasis. If God has changed us, if God has made us one, if God has made a difference in our lives, we've got to tell people. You can't just stay in Herrenhut and say, yeah, this is awesome. Isn't that exactly what happened after Pentecost? This is awesome, so let's keep it to ourselves. I'm like, no, there's this explosion of missions growth. It's like Neo-Pentecost, and explosions of missions growth. In fact, they were the first Protestant church to officially send out missionaries. There are Protestant missionaries who have gone out before this. But this is the first time that a church got together, said, we are going to be a missions-sending agency. Let's send out missionaries. Two of the first missionaries that were sent out were a guy named Johann Dober and... David Nishman, who said, all right, tell you what, I, I see a people group right now that we can reach. Every day, there are slaves being sent over to the New World. They're shackled in holds, they're, they're stuck there, they have no hope, let's give them hope. 
So they went, and then and they, they went to the slavers, and they said, we'd like to minister to your slaves. We'd like to sail over on the ships and give them hope as they go over. We'll stay down the holds with them. We'll, we'll uh, watch over them. We'll take care of them as brothers. And the, and the slavers said, no, nope, you're not allowed to sail with them. We don't, we don't do that. You can't sail with the slaves. You're a white man. There's nothing you can do. And they said, fine. Can we sell ourselves in slavery? Shackle us in the hold. Please, can we minister to these people? I love these guys. I love these guys. God changed them, and, and because he changed them, they said, we can't just sit here comfortably. We have to actually go minister to other people. And so they said, yes, if that's what we need to do, shackle us too. And the slavers are like, no, it's illegal for us to actually, we can't make you guys, fine, you can go over on the ships. Now, sadly, when you hear this story, a lot of times people will say, and they sold themselves into slavery, and they were shackled with the slaves. And I'm like, no, something better. That would have been amazing. But the reason why it would be amazing is that they were willing to do that. And we already got that in the real story. One step slightly more amazing is that they changed the slavers. The slavers said, no, we will not let white people go over on the ship and minister to these people and give them hope. And they said, let me rock your world and blow your mind and say, we'll be slaves too. And the slavers are like, fine. We will let white people go over and give them hope and be on the ship with them. And you just go, that is powerful. Slavers came to know the Lord. Not just the slaves, but slavers came to know the Lord because these two guys said, anything, we will do anything to reach others for Christ. Yes. <laughs> Amazingly, if you actually believe the impossible, that's the only shot you have of it might actually come true. If you're Philip and going, well, there's absolutely no way that the impossible could happen, you go, well, then I guess we're all going to stay out here today. But if you're Andrew who goes, I got a lunchbox. I don't know what you could do with it, but I got a lunchbox here from this kid. If you believe the impossible, you go, and that's, that's what affords the opportunity for the impossible. Other missionaries established missions amongst the Inuit in Greenland, um, the Algonquin in New York, the Lenape in Pennsylvania, the Cherokee in Georgia, all around the world. Explosion within a decade. There's still only tops, what, 300 people in Hernhut? And they're sending out dozens of missionaries all around the world, rocking the world with their missions efforts. And other churches start taking notice. They're like, well, if they can do it, these guys can do it. They have no resources whatsoever except this really young pastor that says, why not? I'm 27 years old, why not? By the time that Dober and Nishman are going out, he's like, I'm 32. Why not? All the 50-year-old pastors going, oh, I have no will. <laughs> <laughs> it's the 32-year-old pastors going, why not? Why not? <laughs> kind of. So how would you summarize? Let's end with this. Where, how would you summarize what's going on here in, in, the, in the decade of the 1720s? If somebody said, what did you talk about in Sunday school today, or better yet, maybe what did you pull out of Sunday school, not just a list, what did you learn? What did we see? <laughs> okay. That works both ways. You've got young guys like Zinzendorf going, let's change this. But you also have young guys like Piotr going, let's change this. Is youth and novelty always a good thing? But you do have people, whether they're older or just established, you do have people saying, but that's wrong, and fighting what's new. Is what's new always good? No. No, it, yes, it depends on the situation, but I can, I can fairly safely say what's new is not always good. What's old is not always good. What's traditional is not always good. What's established is not always good. What's novel is not always good. So we have people going, new, new is good. And you go, some parts of what you're doing is good. New, new is bad. Well, some parts of what's new is bad. How about fresh? Can we, can we go for fresh? Can we go for relationship? It might look new, but Zinzendorf would say, actually, this is as old as, as dirt. This is Acts 2 stuff. No. So you got to stop and say, what exactly am I reacting to? Am I, am, I, am I supporting something because it's established and it's traditional? and therefore it's good. 
Am I supporting something because it's new and it's novel and it's shiny and therefore good? Or am I supporting something, am I going with something because it is right? It's trying to be God honoring. You, it also, also shows that when you, you have to wait, um, that sometimes certain things don't take hold at certain times, but when the time is right, yeah. maybe old ideas can take hold and be, and, and be, um, yep. But the key thing isn't really the oldness or the youngness of something if the rightness of it. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you that you are so conscientious in making your will known, making your heart known, and bringing us to a point where we can actually follow you. I pray, Lord, help us to love you well. Help us to do what you are calling us to do, and not just what we're excited about, comfortable with, not what's traditional, not what's novel. Help us, Lord, first and foremost, to ask what is right. What's your heart? What is it that you would have us to do? And then to do that with the enthusiasm and the exuberance that, that you give us. But help us, Lord, to understand the context of all that we've done. Help us to understand our own history so that we can see that there is really nothing new under the sun. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name.